Hi, I'm Dan, and if you're new to homebrewing, so am I. Welcome to my adventures in homebrewing. Hey everybody, it's Dan. It's that time once more to go around the world one more time and have a beer or two along the way. Thank you so much for coming out. Uh, again, uh, it's been a while since I've been on the been on the airwaves. Uh, like I've said, I'm in the middle of selling my house. Well, not in the middle of selling my house. I've sold my house, and now I'm in the middle of lots and lots and lots of boxes. It's kind of the, the thing when you move, you never realize how much crap you have until you have to pack it up. And then all of a sudden you start having to put things to the road. And yeah, I just realized that half of my garage is all my beer making stuff. So now like, I got to figure out a way to uh, weed things out. Maybe, maybe it's going to be a beer garage. So we'll see. We'll see. So this week, we are very fortunate to be having uh, a gentleman who I believe is also a member of the members of Parliament here in Ottawa. His name is Cal That's Warner. Right. Uh, he is the, 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 the brain behind uh, the electricbrewery.com. So if you don't know what that is, um, this is a, a non-proprietary website where you can go and buy the components, I believe, to build your own electric brewery so this is kind of cool this is the guy to talk to if you ever thought about building your own system or your own rig in your house and to make it work the right way and not like what i would do and burn my house down <laughs> but so yeah so this is the guy to talk to uh and hang tight and we'll be right back after we hear from the guys at escarpment labs hey it's dan here one more time and i'm happy to say that we are now or should i say my podcast is now sponsored by escarpment laboratories Yeast production for the fermentation of the exceptional craft beer. Whether your kit is on the stovetop or in a commercial brew house, wholesale yeast and quality control for the profitable pro brewer. Community engagement and education for the discerning home brewery. If you are a craft brewer and you love using quality yeast, then you really do need to check out Escarpment Laboratories. The BrewTubers online store has everything you need for your brewing apparel and gift idea needs with a growing selection of colors and sizes for hoodies, t-shirts, and caps. Stickers and magnets? Got them. Can holders and coffee mugs? We've got those too. Be the boss of your neighborhood and the envy of brewers everywhere when you flash that beautiful BrewTubers logo at your next local brewing competition. Want everyone to know you're a part of the brew world order? Strike a Superman pose with that BWO logo on your chest and make them all take notice. And if you haven't already, get over to our website at www.brewtubers.com and become a member. Then, just mosey yourself over to that BrewTuber store tab, click on it, and open the door to show the world you are a proud BrewTuber. Brew, record, post, repeat. And we're back. So we are fortunate to have Cal with us today. Cal, how you doing, bud? Good. How are you, Dan? Thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on the show today. It's greatly appreciated. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. For those that don't know, Dan and I are actually co-located. We're in the same city, so maybe next time we'll do this over a beer or something. Uh, uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to offer that up, but then I thought, you know what? It was sort of late, like last minute, so maybe next time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So let's hear about you, bud. Okay. Well, uh, I'm, uh, my background is in electrical engineering. I've always been interested in technology, computers, you name it. So 
that's sort of what I studied in university and been brewing since, oh God, uh, late eighties. Um, you know, the extract kits that we did at the time just worked very good, did that for years on and off and uh, enjoyed it. Uh, the results weren't always what I expected, but uh, you learn a lot. Uh, took a few years hiatus from brewing, did other things. And then around uh, in the mid 2000s, oh, sorry, no, no, earlier than that, in the 90s, I started again with uh, uh, all grain wort kits that were already made for you. The wort was ready to go. So you just pitched the thing into a fermentation bucket or a vessel or whatever, and then fermented, added the yeast. Um, did that for a number of years. Didn't really feel like I was actually brewing because it was kind of like eating, eating a meal or something. It didn't feel like I had any control over it other than the, the fermentation and packaging. So uh, in the mid 2000s, the aughts, I decided to go all grain and started to look around, you know, at what I could use, what kind of system I could uh, essentially purchase to do this uh, all grain brewing. And I wasn't really happy with much of what I could find out there. Partially because, as you know, in Ottawa, Canada, it's cold six to eight months of the year. I was trying to find a spot in my garage somewhere to, you know, uh, clear out some room so I could actually put in a brewing setup. And I remember being in this garage in January saying to myself, I got to get this done. It's freaking cold in here, you know. Uh, and then mm -hmm. I realized I'm not, I'm not going to enjoy brewing in here, you know, if it's always going to be this cold. Uh, brewing, to me, at least is supposed to be a hobby. I want to enjoy my time, uh, take my time. and enjoy the process as much as the end results. So I started to think about how do I move this indoors and started looking at the ventilation requirements. What do restaurants do when they have giant gas powered stoves? And uh, you'll often see these giant hoods in yeah. restaurants yeah. that have massive air evacuation requirements. Never mind doing that in your home, whether you're, you're zoned for that or you're able to do that. So I thought, well, I knew a couple of guys that had done electric where they used hot water heater elements and uh, controlled those. There's no poisonous gases that way. And uh, part of the problem was the way they were doing things. Well, it was, it's often the way that brewers do things is what's the cheapest way I can get something done. So it was a bit scary to see some of the setups that they had. Um, fine by them, but it just wasn't for me. So I took my background uh, designing plant floor systems uh, used by operators at a major manufacturing plant that I worked at in a previous career and uh, took my process control skills too that I had a lot of experience in and figured out a way to build something all electrics and I guess it was one of the very first ones that was uh, documented so I decided to put together my theelectricbrew.com website to help fund that a little bit I thought you know I'll, I'll put up some links maybe people will buy some of the parts from Amazon or something maybe Maybe it'll help uh, write off some of this. And uh, surprisingly enough, there were a lot of other crazy people like me that wanted to do something similar. And that was around 2008. It took about a year to design. I designed everything first, spent about a year thinking mm -hmm. about this uh, process start to end from grain to, to glass and how that would happen via electric and what I needed. And I ended up with a three vessel set up. I decided that was the closest thing that replicates what I want to do, it gives me the flexibility. Uh, you don't have one vessel that's trying to do the job of three or four. You can split up the duties. So a lot of design work, uh, a lot of punching holes in kettles that had never been done yeah. before, very expensive Wickman kettles. That scared the snot out of me because I had these kettles that were very expensive. Nobody had done this before. I spent a lot of time um, 
design, designing sort of the way that the waterproofing would work. And I stole some ideas from John Blickman and his kettles. All his, all his kettles use, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, non-welded connections. They just oh, use yeah. knots. And a lot of people don't even realize that those kettles do that, the, the boilermakers. So I sort of stole that idea and did something very similar. And uh, here we are about 12 to 14 years later. Nice. So now electric brewing is, is pretty cool. I mean, I, I, this is how I get in. I've gotten back into it. I mean, I took a bit of a break after the early 2000s and you're right. right the, 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 the liquid malt extract is, yeah, it's, it's how everyone really, really starts. And you learn that it's hit and miss either you make a good one. And then the next one, you're like, what did I do wrong? And you just go yeah. from there. And I find that's mainly because there's no set consistency to what you get in those kits. Oh, no, they, uh, ours are very consistently bad often. Uh, that's, <laughs> I find it, it depends on the style. I mean, we were trying to, at the time, make some light tasting lagers. And you could buy a kit that said Blondale on it or said, yep. you know, Mexican cerveza. And God forbid, I mean, you, you just can't, the DMEs and LMEs that you can get the quality of, you, you cannot get them that light and be that good. So... I had lots of problems making the lighter beers. I ended up making mostly stouts because that's what, what I found worked the best, but uh, yeah. that's just me, you know? Oh, don't get me wrong. I love a good dark beer, but on a really hot day, I go for yeah. those nice light lagers not, or light beers. Not every day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now let's talk about the electric brewery itself. Let, I know you were saying you might want to show us your setup. Or the brewery, thing uh, in my basement in my lounge where we uh, we often will have a beer. And there's a bar right behind me here, so oh wow, there uh, you can probably see the kettles and whatnot. But we'll give you a tour if you're interested. Let's and, do it. Uh, okay, great. Let me uh, just flip around the camera here, and we'll get up and give you a tour. Right on. That so is we have quite a the setup. We have a bar area here where we actually serve, which works out great. Mm -hmm. eight, uh, eight beers on tap. I ended up going with a more commercial grade for the taps. Uh, this is my second setup. And uh, I find the quality in a lot of the stuff that you'll find is sort of questionable. So this is all from Micromatic. They, they serve tens of thousands of bars and restaurants around the world. So, you know, it's a bit yeah, more money up front, but uh, I figured it's going to last me. Yeah, I have a Micromatic double uh, shank uh, tap in, on my kegerator right now. Great. You know, my kegerator also uses all Micromatic parts. So that's uh, one reason why we like, or I like. Mm -hmm. uh, so behind the, the the bar area, we have windows here. That let's, uh, let's just see in. And uh, we have the brewing setup, three kettle. So sort of the classic uh, setup with a control panel for the control and the heating and whatnot. So lots of different settings and controls here from timers to alarms, to buzzers, to, to you name it. Right on. So uh, there's one question I do have. I know there, there are some uh, systems out there, we won't say any names, uh, that have uh, two control panels. So as your uh, say you're boiling, you can start the HLT and uh, heat up the water to get ready for your cleaning. Uh, is that possible with this setup or do you recommend it or not? 
Uh, you know, it depends on the brewer. My setup, uh, I can't. It's one kettle at a time. Uh, so it uses, it either runs the HLT, which is this kettle right here, uh, through a Herm setup. So there's a coil in here. Mm -hmm. Show you that. My coil isn't uh, as nicely, it was done by hand. So it's a bit wonky, but you know, it still works, gives the same results. It was back when you couldn't really buy them pre-made. Yeah. And there's a heating element, of course, also in the, this is the boil kettle over here, the mash tuns in the middle. And you can see the okay. heating element in there. So um, I do have a design, or we do have plans for people that want to do what we call back-to-back -back setups. So um, that requires a 50 amp line instead of 30. Mine's only 30, which is enough for me because my batch size is only, uh, these are 20 gallon kettles and I brew typically 10 gallons packaged. So anywhere from 11 to 12 post boil at room temperature. Right. And with all the dry hopping I do and everything else and the, you know, the yeast and trub and stuff, uh, I get uh, 10 gallons packaged, two kegs. Um, but yeah, you could run both elements at once if you made some minor modifications. And that's what we call our 50 amp back-to-back -back panel. It's got, uh, it's, it's, it's for people that want to brew back-to-back, -back, which frankly is not a very popular option uh, given the amount of time required. And just, I find it makes for a very confusing brew day because you've got two recipes kind of going on at the same time, but uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's each course. And some others will use that because they want to heat water for cleaning uh while they're boiling so that's another option of course um it all depends what you want to do right uh, just like anything else in brewing there's no right or wrong way often it depends on what your goals are that's nice so uh, that's a uh, fermentation chambers down there i see yeah they're they're wine fridges just uh they're danby brand a uh, good canadian brand well they're fairly inexpensive they're not that uh not that fancy okay. shells are removed and I fit a Nessus BrewTech uh, brew bucket, the seven gallon one in here with the shallows removed. And uh, that lets me control the temperature. I okay. switch here on the side. So the temperatures go anywhere from, I believe, uh, yeah, oh, it's like the one I've got. It goes down to like 35 or something like that. Yeah. Low enough to, uh, I mean, when I'm brewing uh, or sorry, fermenting lagers, I'll tend to be at 50. Uh, ales higher than that all over the place, like a pseudo, a pseudo lager, a hybrid beer, like a California Common or something like that, or a Kolsch would be at usually 60. And then some things will go a bit higher. It tops okay. up at 64, but uh, anything higher than that, I will simply turn off the fridge usually and uh, let it ride. So, okay. It's a lot, it's just, uh, what am I brewing now? I, mean, I got a starter going for a, uh, a Wizen, and that one will be fermented at 62 work temperature because that's what mm -hmm. I like. And uh, once that's two thirds of the way done or so, I'll probably just turn off the fridge, just let it, let it ride up a little bit, and then uh, we're on from there. Nice. So if someone was just getting into this and wanted to build something like what you have, uh, what is a good starting point, at least financially, to get into this? I mean, if you're going to build something like this, to me, you know, just building a five-gallon system, well, you're better off just going buying an all-in-one. Something like this, it would I would say you would want at least uh, like a 10 to 15-gallon system if you're going to go for it. Yeah, you can. I mean, we have a lot of people that follow our instructions, and uh, they do five-gallon setups. I mean, there's pros and cons. Uh, 
really the, the main pro of an all-in-one is price. So it's the least expensive way to get things done. But uh, there are still a lot of people that like to do five-gallon, three-vessel setups for the various benefits. The biggest ones being that, you know, you have three kettles and they can be optimized for the steps they want to produce. You know, you don't need to try to fit everything into one. You're not lifting sacks of grain. You're getting clearer uh, worked into the boil kettle because you're not disturbing the grain bed. Just a bunch of, you know, everybody's different. Everybody has different needs. You can, of course, buy quite a few all-in-ones for the price of what you might spend on something like this. But uh, it's uh, it's like a lot of things in life. Some things, uh, some people like uh, more expensive options or higher-end options. Some people want the cheapest that they can find. It's uh, There's no right or wrong okay. answer really. So what is what is it roughly a, an entry point if for everything do you think with a system like this? Uh, that's that's the number one question I get asked. So I have it in my FAQ at theelectricbrewery.com as the number one question. Um, and if I remember correctly, if you build everything yourself like I did, you're looking at around uh, three thousand US entry okay. points. You know, it goes up a bit if you get some things pre-made. If you already have some kettles or other parts, then of course things, prices will go down too, right? It's, uh, it all depends. Right. All right. So now, did you have to get an electrician to do the, the electrical panel for you? Or did you, because you're an electrical engineer, you're able to figure that on your own. I know someone like me, yeah, I, did it. I, I would get an electrician. That's me though. Uh, yeah, electricians don't tend to work in in panels as much. Like I, that's not what I'd recommend because that you know the, the price of an electrician at 120 bucks an hour, whatever it is, you're better off buying it pre-assembled. Uh, it'll be too expensive. I mean, some people do give a friend that does that sort of stuff, but our experience is that uh, people that follow our instructions, the the guides that I have on my website on uh, on how to build this, they don't really have any difficulties building them. And part of the reason I think is that the instructions aren't meant for electrical engineers, they're meant for the everyday user. So there's wiring diagrams, there's not schematics, there's no CAD drawings, there's nothing that you know, requires an engineering background. It's all done through pictographs, you know, with pictures of the actual parts with wires uh, connecting things. So you do this step-by-step, step, you work things out. Uh, I have some guides on how to test it as you build it, as you move along. And uh, some people, you know, do have questions, of course, so we, we answer them. And uh, after a good 12 years of doing this, we pretty much figured out every single question somebody might have. So we try to, uh, you know, optimize and simplify what they need to do and present things in a clear and concise manner. Okay. So now I'm looking underneath and... Where you have, I think those are your sensors there for HLT, uh, boil kettle and uh, mash tun? That's right. There's uh, there's three temperature sensors, like you mentioned, boil, uh, mash flutter ton and hot liquor tank. Okay. And then right behind there are two heating element connectors and a couple of pump connectors too. Right. And the main power input. Okay. So, so and the main power, that the main power is the part that goes into the actual your actual like breaker panel or is that the one that goes into yeah exactly um my panel the 30 amp version uses a standard dryer outlet it looks like okay. that and our higher powered uh, instructions you'd use a 50 which is a stove outlet so very standard uh what happens is 
this is not things I did myself, of course. Uh, well, you can, as long as you get it uh, ESA approved. In Ontario, we have the Electric Safety Authority. So you need to pull permits. Anything that's permanent in your house, you should definitely hire a per an electrician if you're not comfortable doing it and pull any required permits for your region and whatnot. So very simple instructions. You tell your electrician, I need a dryer outlet. You might wonder what the hell are you doing with a dryer outlet? You know, in a room like this, it looks like a kitchen, but uh, that's, uh, that's what we use. Okay. So how did, how did you install that huge exhaust fan? I mean, that, that's like, like restaurant grade. Yeah, that one is uh, something we had, I had that built. I mean, I did a bunch of tests uh, trying to figure out what sort of fan I needed, what sort of ventilation. And really all we're doing is we're exhausting uh, mostly just moist air. There is no, uh, you know, smoke and things like that. So it's, it's actually quite the simple, um, vent or sorry vent it's got a little trough that runs around which frankly i don't even use i i had it done with a possible drain here that you could then drain into let's say a sink or something else but there is no condensation that forms anywhere i have it just plugged just for our cold canadian winters so we don't get some, some drafts coming in right uh, but i had that custom made at a restaurant supply store there's wow. uh there's a lot of places in any major city that, uh, given the specifications that you might need, you can do that. Um, and some, some people, there's lots of different ways to do this. Really, the only thing you need to vent is your boil. The other ones, usually the lid is always on. There's very little steam escaping. I made something larger purely for aesthetics, mostly. And the, the price difference wasn't, wasn't really major. And uh, some people might even use um, steam condenser lids. That's a new popular option. Yep basically a lid where you sits on top of here and you have, you basically flow water continuously through it to uh, condense the water. And then you have to hopefully save it for, for the future use or just have it go down the drain. I'm, I'm not a fan of those, frankly, because of all the heat and the smell. So one yeah. thing that thing does is it exhausts all the heat. And uh, as you know, in, in Ottawa, we get really cold. Uh, we're at minus 20 centigrade, which is probably what, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's, it's darn cold. And even in the middle of winter with things running and my makeup air running, so I have a vent here that opens that I can open to let air in from the outside. Oh, nice. So the idea is that you, you don't want to suck heated or cooled air from the rest of your house to vent out this thing, partially because houses are built so tight these days that you could pull back from a fireplace or cause some sort of fire hazard or something. There's actually code around that. But what I do is that gets opened and then my brewing door gets closed, essentially creating a sealed room so I pull cold air from the outside and I exhaust the hot air out the vent. And even in the coldest winter days, the room doesn't get uh, any colder than I'd say around 63, 64 Fahrenheit. So, you know, just, just below room temperature, really. Okay. What was the hardest part of like when you were getting in, getting into building this, what was the hardest part of building it actually? I mean, I mean, I'm pretty sure like your brain works on a different level than mine. Cause I admit I'm not the sharpest tool in the box uh, when it comes to actually planning this stuff. But I mean, for you, I think the planning part would be easy, but the building part would be a pain in the nuts. No, you know what? It's funny. Um, it, it's, I spent about a year sort of planning it. 
uh, more of the process, the flow, like what are the steps to, to the all grain brewing I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure it was flexible enough to allow for any kind of future changes. Like uh, nowadays we do things like hop stands or dips or, you know, all kinds of crazy things that didn't exist back when I designed this. And I had no problems adapting or changing or you know, not even changing any equipment, just the equipment just uh, is flexible enough to allow for anything. Um, building it was easy. Uh, that, that was only a couple of days, really. Just punching some holes, attaching some fittings, things like this. I mean, that's just all uh, with a wrench and a, and a quick, quick work. Right. Uh, the hardest part, frankly, was documenting everything. I thought, say, it would take me a few days to document all this, but uh, <laughs> you know, but two, 3,000 hours later, I was still working on it. And frankly, now we're 10, 12 years in and I'm still updating and changing things. So it's, uh, it's that's, that's the hardest part. They always say the hardest is to teach somebody how to do something, not do it yourself. And uh, they're certainly right about that. So what have you upgraded on this system? Uh, absolutely nothing. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I, I did add a slight glass here to my boil kettle a few years ago, which... Uh, cost me way too much money and doesn't really, you know, really do much of anything other than show me clear work coming out of the boil kettle. But uh, other than that, no, I haven't changed anything. I mean, I've had, I think I had one or two of these lights go after 10 years of use. Um, and these lights right here, there's different colors. Different right. uh, but other than that, uh, nothing, uh, nothing's been changed or upgraded or uh, nor have I wanted to uh, really change anything. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you about some of the components that I saw inside of not only your boil kettle, but I think also your mash tun, if that's cool. Yeah, of course. So inside your boil kettle, I think it's called a hop stopper. Let me, uh, let me take the lid off here and I'll show you. Yeah, right there. Is yeah. that like for your hops? That's right. Yeah. That's, um, there was a guy selling these things for years. Uh, and I was trying to figure out what's the best way to filter the hops out of my kettle. And uh, there's lots of different approaches to this. And I've always found that the filter you use connected to the, the pump you use, if you use one, to the chiller, it's all one big system. So there's no such thing as one best filter or one best pumper. Okay. I worked a lot and that's, that's what I ended up with was a hop stopper. It's friction fit, it just pops right off. You don't need to use any tools. Well, that's mostly because of the Blickman. They're kettles. Okay. That's so, friction. so that just sits on the bottom, and then the hops go and just get dropped in. And that's it. They don't need to go inside anything, or. That's right. Oh, okay. Uh, it's because I saw these, and I was like. All right, I got told, I, like the guys I got the system I have now from the guy, they go inside, they do this. I'm like, all right. Um, how <laughs> so now i know how that works i might yeah, have lots, to get a new one lots of different ways like it, it's just it's stainless steel mesh uh he's been through three or four different designs of them over the year this one now has like a cone in the middle just for structural rigidity i mean I, i've been working so closely with them uh, early on I, I liked it so much i said hey do you want me to help you sell these so we put them on my electric brewery uh website and as of today, or maybe five years ago, he decided to go exclusive and we just sell them there. And 
He's come up with uh, a dozen versions over the year. This is the years. This is the latest version 2.0. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's already a few years old. It works great. There were some issues with the original versions that uh, didn't quite work quite as well. You had to slow down your flow a lot. There was there was more usage uh, particulars that you needed to to consider. Right. It wasn't yeah. for everybody. So I mean, even this one, I wouldn't say is for everybody. It all depends on your process. But um, if anybody has any questions, you know, we have uh, links and uh, the manufacturers very responsive and helps people with any questions they have. They're happy to to assist. And okay. make even custom things. There's different versions. This is this one's just for Blickman, so it's just friction fit. But there's other versions that uh, do use fittings and whatnot, compression fittings and other things like that that you might want to use. Okay. So and in fact, inside... we make small. We make sorry. We make small ones now oh, that cool. uh, are used for kegs, little baby versions. Really? Oh, okay. You can see the size difference here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I got super annoyed at, you know, clog, clog the dip tubes and uh, stuff in my glass. And I didn't like, I, I grew a lot of extremely hoppy beers, uh, you know, with quadruple dry hops and all kinds of stuff. And no matter what I do, I'd still, you know, I'd have problems either getting stuff into the keg uh, because of all the, the hop matter or getting stuff out of the keg. So I said, hey, why don't you, can you make me a small version? Let me try that. So that's been working out very well. Again, okay. depends on your process, but it works for me. Right on. So looking inside now your mash tun, um, I saw there's a false bottom. So do the false bottoms depend on the kettle you have, you have or can you just get a generic one and drop it in? You know, there's, there's different ways. Uh, so this is a Blickman Boilermaker, uh, a very old version. Nowadays, they're a bit, uh, they're a bit well, they're actually matte. Uh, but the, the, the ideas are the same. This one comes with, or is available for their specific kettle. And it's got this special sort of buttoned bottom. And again, the, the fitting just comes right out. I'll do this one-handed. Get that out of the way. There we go. Okay. Okay. Lift that up. And so you have this special false bottom that's got this louvered punched, half punched out holes, essentially. Um, and with any false bottom, the only intent of the false bottom is to hold back the grain. The false yeah. bottom is not filter in any brewing setup, not just this one, just any, any setup in the world. It's the, it's the grain bed that actually does the filtering. Um, and this one will sit on sort of a raised lip. I don't know if you can see that okay. Yeah. And there's a little dead space underneath where the dip tube goes down into and sucks your wort out of there. And so I do a constant recirculation. I use a, a Herms coil in the kettle on the right, the HLT, and which holds temperature and the uh, the work just goes around and around and around for hours sometimes. And the end result is a perfectly clear uh, work. Basically a Vorloff, you're doing a Vorloff nonstop. Whereas like a, a batch sparge or somebody that uses a picnic cooler or whatnot, they'll mash their, and their, their grain doesn't move at all throughout the mash. And then at the end, they might give it a stir and then pour some off their kettle output and pour it back on top and repeat that until it runs clear. 
this gives you a much, much cleaner work. What goes into the kettle is crystal clear, just like pretty much any other recirculating setup. Okay, right on. I'm just gonna pause this for a sec because I got. All right, so hopefully, this, guys, we had a small technical issue, mainly on my part. If we get dumped out, don't worry, I'll be, I'll be calling Cal back in so we can keep this going, mainly because it's saying I need to upgrade my system. I've upgraded it, but you know how technology is. It's a bit of a pain in the ass. Anyway, so inside the boil can, inside the mash tun, uh, that's all done. You know, the, it just sits on the, the, the um, I'm having one of those moments. The um, <laughs> false bomb just sits on that lip. Now, have you any, had any issues with any grain or anything getting inside your pumps? Uh, no, not really. I mean, uh, on any setup, you might get, I mean, the, Little holes in this false bottom are so tiny that uh, you can see that, but uh, there's not much that can get through there. You will get some fine particulates that get through and get recirculated. So if you were to look at the uh, the sweet wort as it's going around and around, it starts off cloudy and eventually becomes clear. Never had a never had this stuck pump or anything like that. Um, one thing that's uh, I, I imagine that that false bottom helps that as does that specialized lip. It avoids okay. something okay. what they call, it's called sidewall shunting. It's when you have uh, the liquid essentially goes down the side of the wall because there's a clear path, like a little gap yeah. at the bottom. So the weight of the grain holds the, uh, the false bottom directly against the, the floor of the thing. So there's no problems with that. And like, I don't even use a fancy sparge arm or anything. I, I basically copied what Sapco did in their through magic setups, what Blickman does in their auto sparge setup. It's just a simple hose. Uh, it's something that seems to be really misunderstood. You see a lot of fancy spinning things or I don't know, all kinds of different ways of putting the water or the work back on the, on top of the, the, uh, the grain bed, but sometimes simpler is better. Uh, some people will argue that, well, your mash efficiency is gonna drop if you do that. You gotta spread it out evenly, but I'm hitting over 95% mass efficiency on average ABV beers. So there's really nowhere you can go higher than that. I mean, uh, like Anheuser oh, yeah. InBev, they do 97, 98 when they make Bud Light or something. And um, I think I hit 97 on my Pilsner. I made a couple of, I just kegged last night. So I'm very happy with it. Less parts, no clogging, no clogging of anything does get through it. This hose won't get clogged because a lot of these rotating arms have tiny little holes. All right. So, like I said, guys, we were going to have some technical issues, mainly on my part, because, you know, I've got fat fingers and, um, yeah, I probably pushed something and I kicked Cal out by accident. Sorry, but um, so we were talking about how the water or liquid was getting down the sides and in behind the uh, actual um, uh, false bottom. Right, yeah, how it could, like it's called sidewall shunting. So on some setups, you might get that. Uh, with this false bottom and this lip in the mash shun, you don't get any of that. And uh, I think I was mentioning how I don't like to use a rotating sparge arm or anything. I don't use anything uh, like that. Uh, Lickman doesn't with their auto sparge. Sapco doesn't. It's one of the original sort of all-in-one mm -hmm. gas setups you could buy. They don't use that. And I, I believe I was mentioning the only reason that some people think you need them is to get increased mash efficiency. So the idea is that 
if you don't sprinkle your water evenly across the grain bed or get everything going correctly, then you're not going to pull all the sugar out of the um, out of the grain, and that's simply not true on, on a, on a well-designed setup. I'm hitting a high 90s, 95% mash efficiency and higher, with 100 being as high as you can go. And by using a simple hose, you don't have to worry about clogging. You don't have to worry about any extra parts. It's cheaper. Um, it's and more importantly, it's simpler to clean. A lot of what I designed was, um, since I designed the brewing process first, not the equipment. You got to always do it that way. The equipment comes after. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make everything easy to clean because uh, we all know brewing is a lot of cleaning. It's especially true if you don't pay attention to your process very carefully or buy things that you don't really need. And I think a rotating spar jar is exactly one of those. It's something else that needs cleaning, can clog, you gotta remove it, put it back in every time. With a simple hose, I don't do anything. It just sits there. It sits right. on top of the grain bed, the water recirculates or the wort and uh, mash efficiency is super high. And when it's time to clean it, I just uh, I bring the mash tent over to the sink and just tilt it in sideways. And I actually hook up a, a water line right to the input here and then use this hose to clean the walls and everything. So I'm, I'm double duty. I'm, I'm cleaning the hose at the same time that I'm cleaning the mash tun. Okay, right on. All right. Um, after after I move the grain, of course, you know, the grain gets, uh, you know, just scooped out and goes in the recycle bin. Yeah. Now I had a question though. I was just, oh, you ever have those moments where you're like, I got to ask this question. And then all of a sudden it comes time for your turn to ask it. And you're like, I can't remember. I'm having one Every of those day. moments, right? I'm having one of those moments right now. Um, <laughs> oh, goodness it gracious. It gets worse as you get older. Dude, you don't have to tell me that. I'm like in my 50s now, and I'm like, my mind is going yeah. by the wayside. Um, I don't know how many times I walk into a room to get something, and by the time I get there, I don't remember what the hell I'm there for. <laughs> <laughs> so um, on the system I have, um, the kettle and also the HLT have those side glasses, but not like the ones you have there on your Blickman. They're like just little elbows with polycarbonate uh, tubing. Okay. Do you oh, have right, those on glass. your website? Uh, well, no, you know, side glasses are a funny thing because they have to be specifically tailored for the size of the kettle, right? So yep. um, you have to, you can get uh, aftermarket ones. Uh, but they're okay. rarely as well made. I mean, these are poly, like, uh, these aren't polycarbonate. These are uh, silicate glass. Right. So they'll never cloud. Uh, you know, they're, they're the same stuff that uh, you make these things out of. Okay. Um, if you get an aftermarket one, you then have to manually notch it by hand because every kettle is different. And depending on exactly where you install to the height to begin with, will right. will we'll, uh, change what's done. So I don't have a, I don't have a solution for that, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, I, I do like having the sight glasses. I know a lot of the uh, lower end kettles have uh, just, um, what do you call it? Uh, markings on the inside, similar to, yeah. similar to what I have, in fact, on these guys here. I move this out of the way. And the problem with markings, I find, is they work if you only have water or something, but... Uh, yeah. Just I, I hear you. Like, I mean, I can never tell exactly how much I'm getting into these kettles or into these uh, fermenters because you get a good inch or two of foam there when you're filling it. So it's 
it's impossible to read. And the same goes with these sorts of kettles. And I use a sight glass quite a bit, um, not just for filling and knowing where levels are at, but also for sparge rates. It's something that uh, works really well. So what I do is when you're sparging, or sorry, when you're first mashing, your water level will be at a certain point. Say we're at, you know, 10, 10 gallons or something. I put a binder clip on here, and as I'm sparging, I want to make sure that the rate coming out of the kettle here equals the rate that's going in, because I have pumps that I use to set that. So mm -hmm. I watch this carefully for the first couple of minutes, set the pump rates to equal, and then I'm good to go. If I had to lift the lid every time to do that, and with the foam and the mash, which happens sometimes, depending on what your wrist is like, it becomes a pain in the butt. And you, it's not quite as accurate either. You, know, you can't see small minute changes of ingredients and stuff. I mean, that's just the way I do it. It's there is little trick and hint. There's lots of different ways to approach that, but I love having the sight glasses. I can understand that. Yeah, the ones I have, like I was able to replace one, but the other two, I got, I have them, but the glasses are too too short. So right. I have to see about getting ones that are a little longer for the mash ton and also for the boil kettle. Because uh, they're all uh, graduated as well. So I was hoping okay. what I got was going to work, but we'll see. Interesting. Um, Interesting. They're often not protected either. Like the one problem is, you know, kettles are heavy and well, yeah. brewers are clumsy, right? And uh, especially if you got a couple of beers and you're throwing this thing around trying to clean it, all you have to do is yeah. the polycarbonate just once and you'll snap it or crack it. Or now, I'd rather have yeah. none, I think, than uh, something that was unprotected. I'd be too, uh, I'd be too scared to break the thing. You're talking to an ex-army guy. Break everything, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is there anything else you want to pass on to anybody that they should know about an all electric do it yourself system? Well, you know, I, the thing I like to always say, I, I'm an engineer, a scientist first, and uh, some people will make up stuff that, you know, electric's better. You can brew better beer with electric. Well, that's not really true. I mean, heat is heat. Doesn't matter how you do it. Uh, the only reason I went electric was not to brew necessarily better beer, but to be able to do it indoors um, and to be able to do it, uh, to have maybe an easier control. You can, you can build control systems for gas setups as well, but they get kind of expensive and convoluted and, and hard to maintain, uh, you know, low heat. Um, what I like about electric is it's, it's very, very precise. It's also, it's also noise free. There's absolutely no noise other than the fan. If you turn the fan off and you're heating or boiling or something, you will hear absolutely nothing. A lot of the gas burners sound like jet engines. Yeah. Whereas this thing here, I mean, the only thing I'll hear is once in a while, like the, the buzzer going off, uh, and the, the pumps do make some noise, you know, but there's different options out there. Some are quieter. These ones. These ones don't bother me. These are the original March pumps that became popular from uh, that brewers used 10 plus years ago. Nowadays, there's different manufacturers that make pumps. These are the originals. Uh, March makes them to run literally 365 days a year because they were originally meant for heating systems and sump pumps and things like that, oil systems. So you know you got something that's going to last, and the warranty shows that compared to some of the other manufacturers. But Again, to each their own. That's uh, one of the fun things about brewing, right? You can brew whatever you want. Uh, you can choose the setup you like, whatever makes sense to you. 
don't listen to the manufacturers necessarily. That includes me. Don't, uh, don't necessarily follow me. Do your own research. Figure out what works best for you. There's no one size fits all, really. Awesome. Well, Cal, I got to say thanks for your time, man. I appreciate everything you've told us. Uh, this is actually going to help me out a lot going forward because now I have a, a good idea of how I want my stuff to be laid out. I mean, I won't have the cool sink like you do in my two-car heated garage, but <laughs> thanks. But Let's I, I won't work towards it. If you can get a sink in, I, I, if people ask me, what is the most important piece of equipment you have? And as boring as it sounds, I show them this, my sink. Because sink, uh, sink is key. The sink is in the middle, mm -hmm. closest to everything else, because you're always in the sink. Um, I brewed for eight, nine months in the garage, and no offense, but I found it to be a pain in the butt. Uh, so hopefully your experience will be better, but it all depends. Yeah, we have a new house that we're moving into. It's a two-car heated garage, which is fantastic for me. So during the winter, I can keep all the doors closed. That's great. And, uh, and do my thing. And the door that goes into the house uh, from the garage goes right into the mudroom where the laundry room is. So, oh, I, so I can run hoses and everything from the laundry sink and everything else that way. That's great. That's, you know, as long as you have running water somewhere, you know, even just a hose, people often... Most outdoor brewers, that's what they have, right? They have their garden hose and use that to chill. They use that to fill their kettles or kettle and their other things. So, hey, lots of different ways to brew. Absolutely. So, guys, this was Cal Warner of the Electric Home Brewery. Cal, thank you so much for taking the time and, and the opportunity to see how you do, do business in your home brewery. It's greatly appreciated. And, and you know what? This is actually going to possibly help out a lot of people realize that it's not to be something to be scared of if you want to do it like this. Exactly. If anybody has questions, they can always reach out. Uh, they can uh, reach me at cal at theelectricbrewery.com or just visit the website too. We have lots of facts and other information. Uh, most questions we've heard a thousand times, so we're happy to answer them. Awesome. Guys, this is Dan and that's Cal. And thanks again for coming along for a beer or two along the way. I'm Dan and we'll see you on the other side.